The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. Usually, okay, not usually, sometimes, okay, not sometimes, occasionally, we will have people reach out to us and they'll say things like, you need to talk to this person. Then there's other times that Holly and I will reach out to random people. Hey, we heard this story or we want you to be involved. Come on our show. But then, and I feel like this is probably a lot more Holly than it is me. She says, hey, I know somebody. Of course she does. It's Holly (laughs) who is doing amazing, fantastic things in this world. And we need to talk to insert name here. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have for this week. Yes. And I'm so excited. I feel like this podcast has become a platform for me to hang out with my friends. <laughs> it's it's a time for if you haven't seen them in a while, then you yeah. do a little reunion. Yeah. Then, you know, we start chatting 20 minutes later and I'm like, guys, we actually need to get this done. <laughs> we got work to do. <laughs> right. So without further ado, uh, one of Holly's best friends, uh, and she might not even know it. Uh, Rachel Bergeron, how are you? Great. Thanks. How are you? We're good. My goal is to have you be my best friend and no longer Holly's. We're almost there. We're almost Love there. It. <laughs> I moved well, away, so, you know. Yeah. Um, the, we like to ask the skill testing question, the hardest question that you will get today, and that is, who are you and where did you come from? Well, that's a lot. It really is the hardest question. Um, I am a mom of two, almost three. I live in Edmonton. Um, my mom is from Trinidad and my dad was born in Canada and that's me. I'm a nurse and now I do a little bit of social justice advocacy on the side. <laughs> As if helping people wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like honestly, it kind of started from there. You just like are helping people and you see all these different populations and all of the different struggles that so many people across so many walks of life have that mm. you see a lot more of like the deep rooted issues that might not be so obvious mm. up front. Yeah. It's a huge motivating factor. Well, let's talk about the early days. Yeah. Uh, so your uh, one side of your family is from Trinidad, which we bonded over because we're both yes. mixed and our kids were in preschool. We were the mixed mamas because we had another friend who was also mixed. It's great yeah. to have someone <laughs> that you can like connect with on that level. Totally. And so growing up, having the mixed family environment, what was that like for you? What was your experience? I mean, it was great. It was fine. Honestly, it wasn't even something that you notice because you just grow up in it, having mm-hmm. both cultures at home. It wasn't until you get to school that people start calling you a coconut and things like that. A coconut? You're, yeah, you're brown and fuzzy on the outside, but white on the inside. It's very, it's very. <laughs> I have never heard that <laughs> in my life. Oh my goodness. I've <laughs> yeah. never heard that. Yeah. And it, honestly, it wasn't until junior high. That was the first time I heard it, thankfully. But um, that was really the first time I noticed that I was biracial because mm-hmm. it was just normal, right? That's just what we are. For someone then who is biracial, how do you go home to talk to mom then who's black, dad who is white, and you're like, guys, you neither of you actually know what's going on. Yeah, it, it, it is a kind of not, I wouldn't say lonely, but it's a confusing place to be for sure. And especially when you don't have other biracial friends to talk to, I think, I feel like that's what you said, why we bonded. So we're like, oh, look, I mixed mamas. Yeah. <laughs> um, cause yeah, 
where I went to school, it was predominantly white. There weren't a ton of brown kids, biracial kids, black kids. Yeah, similar experience. I called yeah. myself a rebel. Do you remember the ice cream bars? Yes. Chocolate on the outside and, and That's vanilla much inside? nicer. Yes. So I embraced that. Johnny yes. shaking his head. <laughs> oh my goodness. But it is kind of a weird thing to belong culturally but not visually and then vice versa. For me, that was always the the struggle is, oh, you look like you're this. Why can't you dance well? Mm. Well, my white side's coming out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't like spice? No. Yeah. Yeah, no <laughs> the other side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it can be really tough to navigate that. How how was it for you throughout then junior high and high school? You know what? It was just kind of a thing where you sort of had to choose one side and stick with it. And because I'm obviously not white when you look at me. I chose the brown side of my family. It was a lot of, I don't know, you just never feel like you fit in. I didn't feel like I fit fit in with the brown kids. I didn't fit in with the white kids. So I just stuck to books and (laughs) academics and just studied (laughs) and had no social life. Did you ever go to Trinidad and experience the Black culture? No, we didn't. It was just one of those things, right? Yeah. <laughs> once once my family left, they were like, no, why would we go back? Canada yeah. is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was like we left Trinidad for a reason. So we'll we'll stay here. Yeah. So you but you I, had said uh and we'll fast forward a little bit, but you had said that uh, you have two kids. Is is your husband uh, white? Is he black? And I mean, it's going to sound weird. Was there? Did you feel like there was a preference as to you dating or the person you were going to marry? All of my aunts in my family have married white men, and for some reason, that was just like the relationship I saw at home, and it was the relationship I went for. So I, were, I married a white man. We have two girls, and one of them just she identifies as being colored. Emily, she. In school, if something happens, she's like, it only happens to the color kids. <laughs> it was me and this one other girl. And I'm like, oh, honey, you are colored, sure. But you're also quite fair-skinned. <laughs> so <laughs> not, it's not just a hate crime yet. So let's check <laughs> <I> it <get> out. <laughs> Any. <laughs> um, yeah. And one of my other kids is white passing. She does not have any melanin in there. <laughs> she's very... <laughs> Pale. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a very interesting um, road and just kind of world to navigate being in between, mm-hmm. kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how I felt. Yeah, for sure. You feel like a, a bit of an outsider. Was there a point in time when then you felt normal, if you will, or you felt like you found out who you were? I think it was just a point in time where I just accepted that this is me. I am biracial. I'm never going to be one or the other. I'm always going to be both. And honestly, a huge factor in all of that was when um, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of started like rising up in 2019, 2020, after the murder of George Floyd. And there was just so much more stuff out there about being BIPOC and being biracial and having an identity that wasn't necessarily like just one thing. So I think it wasn't that long ago that I was really started to become more accepting of who I was and where I came from. But 
Uh, yeah. I want to talk about, you know, in high school and you're thinking, what do I want to be when I grow up? And mm-hmm. was for you nursing that, that end goal or was there something else you were striving for? You know what? I always was super into biology, <laughs> loved it from the start. <laughs> and I came from generations of nurses, like my grandma's a nurse, my mom's a nurse. And it mm. just kind of seemed like, okay, well, I should be a nurse. Let's yeah. try that. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I was really good at sciences in school. So it just felt like the right path to take. Yeah. Seems like people go into nursing for two reasons. It's like the science, like the biology of it, or it's they want to help people in the caregiving side. For you, was it the science more than the caregiving? Was it a good mix of both? I think it's a mix of both. It's always a mix of both. If I just love science and I didn't want to deal with people, I would have ended up in a lab somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Easier professions, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) As As a nurse, what is your, do you have a specialty or what field are you in? Basically, geriatrics is what it is. I work in home care. So we do deal with some like 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds that come home and just need IVs or something like that. And they don't want to be stuck in the hospital the whole time. But for the most part, it's um, families that are bringing in or needing someone to assess their aging parents' needs so that they're able to keep them in their home for as long as possible. And they're not being sent to long-term care or like a nursing home or something like that prematurely when they can be a little bit more independent mm-hmm. for a little bit longer. There's going to be a definite increase in need for those kinds of nurses as we, we move ahead. I heard a stat just saying how how quickly our population is aging and it's it's going to be tough. Yeah. Baby boomers, there. Yes, <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> it's uh, the fastest growing aging population. Twelve percent of those in Canada are sixty-five plus, mm-hmm. or eighty-five plus, or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, and especially now with the pandemic and everything going on, people just don't want to send their loved ones into congregate living settings, which is understandable, of course. Yeah. So there's a lot of demand for in-home services right now, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, mm-hmm. so you're living your life. You're checking along. You and I are hanging out at preschool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have the event that I feel changed our world. It just rocked so many people to the core. That was the events of George Floyd uh, that happened in the U.S. And it just seemed like that was such a pivotal moment in people assessing how we treat other people, uh, systemic racism. Um, For you, what was the impact of that moment on your life, seeing that unfold? Um, It was just, I like, I've, I've lived a very privileged life and a very sheltered life. One of the perks of being biracial is having that like white parent flex so yeah, if something happens, like white dad comes into school and all of a sudden everyone's like, oh yeah, okay, sorry. And mm. it's a different reaction that you get. Um, so I think that because I've lived such a sheltered life for a really long time, I was totally unaware of how dangerous it is for specifically black and indigenous people in North America. It's awful um so that was really eye-opening to to see 
how everything unfolded and to read like about how he was recovering from COVID and like that's why he was having issues with breathing and like all of this on top of everything that had happened like it was just another person you know and to have all of that happen to him just because of the color of his skin and to see the way that it's just so I don't know how better because it's not really hurtful to me personally but it is a painful thing to watch it was traumatic yeah. It was one of those things where even though, you know, I share a very similar experience to you, um, you know, being able to have a white parent and a black parent and you can, you know, have the white parent flex, yeah. um, you know, like my mom is the white one in my family. And so, you know, got to embrace the Karen, right? Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Although she's not a Karen and I know Karens are lovely, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but it's, it was traumatic. And I think for anybody who had any kind of even a microaggression to even learn what that meant. I mean, I didn't realize, and this sounds really ridiculous, but I didn't realize that I was black in the eyes of the world until I, I saw those events unfold, which sounds weird. And I probably need to see a therapist and we'll get there eventually. But um, it was one of those things where I'm like, oh my goodness, my husband who's black could be driving and this could happen to him. Suddenly yeah. every trauma that I had heard of, I was living. And it was really heavy to see that happen and realize that he had no voice. Mm-hmm. And it was just such a hopeless feeling. That was the George Floyd <laughs> for me. I just... It's very, very, very traumatic. And I noticed for you, um, especially with social media, um, your whole social media platform was, you know, oh, here's an art thing. Here's something you can do with kids. And it was, you know, yeah. very much like your influencer kind of Instagram feed. You took yeah. a break and your whole online social media presence changed. Um, tell me about that shift for you and, and what you wanted to start to have a voice for. So truly it was... It was, yeah, at the very beginning of the pandemic around when everything happened that um, I was in like a super dark place. Um, Caregiver burnout is like a real thing (laughs) when you're nursing. And um, honestly, in the nursing profession, a lot of the time you're not seen as being as smart. You're not seen as being as capable when you're younger and when you're a person of color, truly, because with the elderly population that we deal with a lot of the time, you walk into the room and they're like, Oh no, I'm waiting for the nurse. You're like, no, Mm. I'm, I'm the RN. They're like, Oh, do you have a a badge on you? And you're like, need to prove and show them your credentials. And it's just, it's different. Like I was, providing wound care to a gentleman that lost his leg in a war and um I was with a student nurse that was talking to him and thanking him for his service and not realizing that he lost his leg in World War II fighting for the Germans so Mm -hmm. I mean he was 18 years old he's a young guy we can't hold any of that against him we don't know what circumstances led him to fight in that war but it's an uncomfortable situation to be in a room where the student nurse that's coming to observe you is providing the wound care because the gentleman that you're trying to help won't let you touch him because of the color of your skin it was like a culmination of things throughout the years that sort of led to me being in a very tough mental space and kind of questioning like 
why am I doing this? People, for the most part, are great, but it's always the bad experiences that stick out. So Mm -hmm. like, why am I, why am I here? Why am I nursing? Why am I just posting these frivolous pictures of like decorating cakes on Instagram when like people are dying? Like there's just so many bigger things in the world and my life has to be more than just this. So I was kind of in that moment that I was like, well, change can start anywhere. It can be a small thing. It can be a huge thing. And I feel like change starts with little ones because they're the ones that we can mold and shape and influence for the better and for the worse sometimes, but (laughs) (laughs) mainly for the better. (laughs) So um, it just kind of made sense to start working with kids and with a younger population to start trying to make, make some change. What was that next step then? What was that? Was there then goals? Okay. I want to make a change, but what does change look like? I want to, you know, I want to save the world, but I'm only one person. Was there thoughts, goals as to what that next step was going to be? So initially it just started off with me talking with my kids at home. It just started with, me and Emily mostly because my younger one was a bit young and um, we would have conversations about privilege and that sort of stuff. And to see it actually makes sense to her and to not be a concept that was too mature for her to understand was huge. Like part of me just went into it being like, okay, well I'll try. And like, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But like we were watching a show called Blippy. (laughs) I don't know if you know Blippy, Um, (laughs) but he was talking about how uh, electric cars are great and everyone should be driving electric cars. And Emily was like, mom, I hate this Blippy guy. And I was like, well, why would you say that? Like, why are you so upset with Blippy? She's like, well, not everybody can afford electric cars. And it's not fair for him to say that this is what we need to do to make the planet a better place because not everybody can. We can do different things too. So like, it was kind of in that moment that I was like, wow, she totally understands. Like she got what, what privilege was. Like he has this level of privilege where he thinks, okay, well, everyone should do this. Everyone can do this, but we can't all afford the things. So um, from that, what actually happened separately <laughs> was um, one of my friends, her daughter uh, had a little bit of an incident at school where um, she was on the playground and was having a debate with one of her peers, but was told that her opinion didn't matter. She didn't know what she was talking about because she was dark. The color of her skin was like brown and dirty and she wasn't, she didn't know what she was saying. He like discounted her because of the color of her skin. And um, my friend went to the school and was like, how can we deal with this? <laughs> because our we live in a predominantly white community. There's a lot of, there's only white administrators at our school. And it was a bit of a tough situation for them to broach because as figures of authority, they didn't want to be telling a child of color, like how she should feel, how she should be dealing with this, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So um she worked with the school and they kind of came up with a plan to bring in some books about diversity and 
how beautiful it is and how no matter what skin color you are, you can do anything and just kind of like encouraging representation and that sort of stuff. So she came to me and she was like, Hey, do you want to donate some books? And I was like, um, sure. But like, it's falling on people of color again (laughs) to support (laughs) this. So let's do some fundraising. (laughs) And we started the black bookshelf project that way. We went to one of my graphic designer friends and we were like, Hey, we would love to get some cards made with like the skin tone rainbow that we like. And we thought was cute. And she was like, well, I want to do this for my school too. So we took it from there and we decided to register as a nonprofit and just spread the books and the love and the representation as far as, and, and as wide as we could. What was the goal of this then? So this is, Hey, this is the idea that we have. We want to make people more aware, Yeah. but then what's that next step? Honestly, the goal is just representation in schools. We just want to diversify libraries. We don't really have a long-term goal other than to just get as many books written by people of color that represent the experiences of Black, Indigenous people of color across Alberta and maybe eventually farther. Because the stories we tell our kids, they leave a lasting impact I remember watching shows and thinking, oh, you know, when we're playing make-believe, I can't play that character because I don't look like her. Mm. So then where do I fit in? I guess it'll be a tree, right? Like Like, that's kind of what I felt like. Yeah. Or Jasmine. You're either Jasmine or the tree. (laughs) One of the two. It's so true. (laughs) And then someone was telling me about Tiana, right? Yeah. It could be Tiana. I'm like, Great. Yeah. And then someone else was like, but she's a frog for most of the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Okay. But I don't have green <laughs> skin, so now I can't be Tiana. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's tough to win. <laughs> it is. But it's incredible seeing people starting to ask questions, people starting to uh, write books. And there yeah. has been so much more representation, I feel, in the past two years and you know, the, our entire lifetime leading up to that. Do you think, and I don't know if you know the answer and we're just having this conversation that a lot of the reason why though books maybe aren't available is because people of color aren't writing them. And I say that because we're in the Christian music industry. And a lot of times we get messages from people that say, well, you don't play enough black artists but we're also not getting music from artists in order for us to play it. So it's kind of this whole thing of, we would love to be able to have more of it if it was given to us, but we're not necessarily. And it's just this weird ongoing cycle. So is the reason why that there's sometimes not enough um, books in that, that are published is because there's not enough people writing them. I, I think that that is complicated. I think that it has a lot to do with, um, it could potentially be that they're maybe not getting picked up by the publishers and they don't have the means to self-publish books like that. There definitely, I think, have been a lot of oppressive factors for BIPOC artists throughout all of history. And Mm -hmm. I think that now we're finally starting to see the rise of that because more attention is being drawn to the fact that there hasn't been that much opportunity for BIPOC artists before this point. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because it is, it's complicated. And that's, that's the thing about systemic racism is that you are living in a system that 
has been orchestrated in many ways to make the minorities not succeed. But that's also the reason why I want to bring it up, though, because as a yeah. white guy, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's just because there's not enough people writing books. Mm-hmm. But then from your perspective is, oh, no, there are a lot of writers. We're just not getting published to then right? And so then we're able to have the conversation as, OK, then what can we do next? So what is what is the biggest challenge then that you guys are facing? Honestly, the biggest challenge that we're facing is um, sort of butting heads with um, the systemic racism within our school boards. We've actually had a lot of backlash from a couple of the school boards that we work with, with um, certain novels being put in schools. Like um, there's this book called A is for Activist, and it's a board book for younger kids. And it um, just really simply goes through different terms like that have to do with climate change, racism, that kind of stuff. And it is very simply laid out and it's a board book so the intention is for it to be read not by a child on their own it would be a Mm. child and their parent so that someone could kind of help them through or a child and their teacher so someone could help explain things along the way um but we were told that it was university level curriculum and that it was going to be pulled from shelves and it wasn't appropriate and so there's just like a bunch of little things along the way. But I think that once we hit a roadblock, we kind of know that we're pushing in the right direction. It's hard to teach uh, our kids about this topic, maybe because we were never taught it. So how do you teach it? Uh, Other reasons, just not full understanding, not having the resources, Uh, But it's important conversations to have. So for a parent who wants to go down this road, wants to make sure their kids are um, exposed to diversity and and finding ways within our system to make shifts so that people feel included, where do they start? Um, As like the university educated professional in me does not want to tell you to start on the internet, but you have to start on the internet. (laughs) That's where, that's where I don't like, there's actually a ton of research from Harvard, Stanford, a few other places that have um, gone through how to approach these topics with kids from a young age going all the way to high school. So there are a ton of professionals that have been studying it and have been publishing work about it who just haven't been paying attention for a really long time. So it's out there. There's a lot of information out there. And like not to plug the Black Bookshelf Project, but we also... Plug away. <laughs> yeah. We, one of the things that we did realize is that throwing these books into a school, these books have been around for a while. And mm. people have, haven't been able to use them either because they don't feel comfortable. They don't know how to use them. They're not sure how to have the conversations around them. So we partnered with, um, not partnered with, we have a bunch of educators on our board um, that we are developing resources with to help parents have those conversations and to guide discussions. Like we have a craft kit on our website and to go along with like our our book about body positivity and it's just like a bunch of different shapes, little wooden peg dolls and some questions to go along with it. Like how are these dolls the same? They're all made of the same material. How are they different? 
Well, they have different wood grains. Some of them are darker. Some of them are lighter. Like just those little conversations to kind of see where your inherent biases are. Like you don't realize that you have them. They're just ingrained in you from the things that we see on TV or the things that we've read or been exposed to our whole lives. Like when you're looking at a villain, they're always, it's always a dark color associated with villain, bad guy, whatever. And the white light colored angel is always there to save us. So like, it's kind of a little thing where all these small images have been pushed on us our entire lives. And it's just tiny questions we can ask ourselves and ask our kids to evaluate our bias and kind of make small changes. How many schools uh, do, do you have a, a number as to how many now are in, involved in this or, you know, might uh, be involved in this in the next while? Yeah. So we have 10 schools that we're in right now and we have 17 schools on our wait list. It's a pretty solid amount for, yeah, cause you guys for a little launched group when? of seven. When did you guys um, launch? Wasn't that long ago? May. May. You're coming yeah. up your one-year birthday. Yeah, we're almost there. Hey, there we go. Do you know the date? May 30th. And it's, it's been exciting. a strong year. I mean, you got the attention of Ikea. How? I know. It's honestly, it's all Justine. <laughs> she um, <laughs> she designed a, maybe it's a showroom, a show house. Okay. You know how they have like the little houses that you can walk through? Yes. Yeah. yeah she designed one of those with them and... The Black Bookshelf Project is such a huge part of all of our lives that she was like, I mean, I have all these books in my home. I have all this stuff in my home. We should totally put a shelf in our show home in Ikea. Yeah. And that's kind of how it stemmed from there. Nice. Good experience. Yeah. yeah, it was great. <laughs> we ended up winning the City of Edmonton Anti-Racism Capacity Building Grant too, which was huge. Wow. So we've been able to, well, we're in the process of donating a ton of bookshelves to a bunch of schools in the Edmonton in Edmonton. Um, yeah, as a result of it. So it's been great. What, uh, is, is there a cost behind or how can somebody get involved? You said donating the, the bookshelves, like how much is a bookshelf for us to, you know, get involved with? Yeah. So our bookshelves are 1300 and they come with 30 books, um, resources to go with all of those books access to our online database that has like all of our resources on it. And we add like different coloring activities and we have like a school collage where you like print off 30 pages and you can like make a beautiful collage that says unity and community. <laughs> and so we have like fun little activities that kind of accompany the learning in the books. Um, so yeah, everything's on our website. Everything can be purchased from there. Right now, we're just kind of doing Edmonton area because we haven't figured out how to ship everything in a cost-effective way. It's a big product. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's where we're at. Oh, well, I'm just so excited for you. I just remember standing in line, kid pickups, talking about just life and yeah. feeling different, being different. And now as we are parents... Yeah. What are our next steps in helping our kids feel included and not othered? So hmm. I'm excited for you. I really, really yes. am. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right. So what is the website? The black bookshelfproject.ca. I know it's very long. We should have gone with TBBP. <laughs> the longest CA, business card <laughs> ever. It's nuts. 
but it's too late now. We've invested in it. It is what it is. That ship has sailed. The longest email addresses of life. I know. It's it's just the things you think about later. Yeah. Hindsight. Hindsight. Yeah. I anticipate it'll be around long enough, though, for you to rebrand at some point and shorten those URLs. Fingers crossed. Again, you can check out the blackbookshelfproject.ca at the Black Book Shelf Project on the socials. Rachel, we appreciate you taking some time and sharing your heart for today. Thank you so much for having me. A great conversation that, as we always say, needs to be had, sparks a conversation, and it was really great to just chat with her. Yeah, it's always nice to talk to somebody who understands what you have been through as well. So um, I love Rachel and her family and what they are doing uh, with the community and just trying to encourage the conversations, uh, especially with our kids. And I love what she said about change. It doesn't have to be big. You can just make small little adjustments and small little changes, and it can have such a big impact. And she's sitting there, and I'm asking all these difficult questions that you know she might not have the answer to, that we might not have the answer to. And it's like, here we, here we are just throwing this rapid fire at you. But then ultimately, even if we don't have the answers, it sparks a conversation. Or somebody who has the answers or a better answer than we do can also reach out to us and say, oh, guys, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. Or this is how we can uh, evoke change. Still very much learning, at least in my camp. And it's, um, I don't know, I just, I love the process of learning. And I hope that my kids will be game changers and world changers as well. I think, I think we are definitely changing. And there's always conversations that, I mean, where we were two years ago from now is different than, you know, where we were five years ago to 10 years ago. And we should have change. We should be able to grow. Still a long way to go, though. Thank you for tuning in, hanging out with us, as we always say, uh, reaching out to us on whether it's uh, the Facebook, on the Twitter, the Instagram, and all of the places that you do get the uh, podcast. You can also go to faithstrongtoday.com for more.